So I essentially, at dinner, first time meeting this person, I essentially made them a proposition. If I go ahead and buy this building, will you go into business with me? And that's essentially how it came about. Wow. So you've closed on the building already. How yeah. do you buy cash or how do yeah. you? How do you raise enough cash to buy a building to that's a dead asset? It's my own cash for one. As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Everybody and welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got the extreme pleasure of having Fabiola Florenville with me today. Hey. How are things in Miami? I mean, Miami is always great. It's Miami. You can't really go wrong being in Miami. So um, I think we might be at like 90 degree weather right now, but you know, it's Miami. Are the beaches back open yet? No. It better not be. That's Jacksonville, not Miami. We're four, four and a half hours away from that. So we got South Florida and then the rest of Florida. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's them up north. Do me a favor and uh -huh. tell me how the listeners can get in touch with you if they want to learn more about you and your story. Okay. Well, I'm on IG at Invest with Fab. Um, you can find me on IG and on Facebook as well, Invest with Fab. And then my um, company, Icon Heritage Partners. Uh, you can find me online, iconheritagepartners.com. Perfect, perfect, perfect. So now let's talk about your background. Like, how did you get into this space and what type of stuff have you been working on? Well, I bought my first investment property um, in 2006 as a young buck coming out of grad school in Atlanta, pre-market crash. Um, and actually how I got started in real estate, the guy that I was dating at the time, like you said, I got fired. So um, I've always been an entrepreneur, always had, you know, my own money machine. You know, even as a kid, I was that kid at, in the seventh grade that was making money selling chips and candy. Not that I needed it, um, but I like the idea of being able to make my own money. So I always knew that I would never go into corporate America. So even though I just came out of grad school with an MBA, I already knew that I was not going a corporate route. So I started, I started my marketing agency. So I actually have two businesses, which I still do have. And then at that time, I also knew that I wanted to go into real estate. So the guy that I was dating was like, I don't know anything about investing, but I know you and I know you have hustle. So I'm coming out of grad school, starting a business. Obviously you have no money money because you for you know you're like I'm not going the corporate route so you have no money you have no credit so he essentially loaned me the down payment that I needed and his boy had the credit he loaned me his credit I had the brains I had the hustle I was like all right so the three of us were going to go ahead and do this so that was the very first investment property that I purchased um, it was a, a rehab uh, meant to be a fix and flip and at that time if anyone was in the game in 2005 2006 that was a, the sweetest time to be in real estate. That's when everything under the sun was being created. You know, wraparound mortgages, lease options, every single scenario that you could think of 
was being done at that time. Obviously, that led to a lot of the fraud that we saw that led to the crash. But um, and me being young at that time, I came in towards the tail end. So we purchased this building. I purchased it. They gave me the money and the credit. And I paid them back within 30 days of having the first check from the property. Um, because it's a rehab. So I got a hard money loan on it. You know, you're about to do a rehab. So I paid them from the rehab funds. And so they got, I made them home in 30 days. And then once we uh, completed the rehab, um, there was so much equity in the, in the uh, property, took some of the money out, paid them a split from that, um, and then took them out of the deal. Because at this point, you know, it's, I can do it on my own now. Um, and then there was additional money that was left. So, you know, on that one particular property, I made a couple of checks. Um, and then I was able to do a couple more before the market crashed. And being young at that age, you know, is the first time that you're seeing a nice fat check walk, walking into the bank and they're looking at you like your age does not match up to this. You feel good, right? Um, but what I didn't know and what I didn't learn at a very young age, would be, which became my uh, foundation for how I invest now, you know, I'm going into it all wide open and optimistic because everybody's making money in real estate and I want to be the ones too. But <laughs> market timing is one. Understanding economic conditions and how all that plays into real estate is another one. And just money management, construction management, all of these things you don't know until you actually go into a deal and make those mistakes. Um, you know, you're going to learn it one way or another. And I learned it very early on. And then the market crashed. So you're forced to learn. So I only really had a good year and a half before the market crashed. So it was like I had a fast high and then it dropped really fast, you know? So to get a really fast, uh, you know, uh, training ground like that at a very young age, that did a lot for me because one, I was in my very early 20s. So I figured whatever I lost, by the time I'm 30, I could easily make it back up. So I wasn't afraid to lose anything at that point. You know, I figured that, you know, I would rebound anyway versus had I been 35, you know, and I experienced that, I, I would have been crushed. I don't know how I would have rebounded. So that's helped me from, you know, what was that? Like almost 20 years, 15 years ago, that's helped me you know, to really be the investor that I am now. I'm still, you know, I, I have a higher risk tolerance, but I'm very prudent. The way I run my numbers, totally different. Um, my goal, no goal for deal analysis, totally different. And even how I manage contractors, totally different. Not that you're not gonna experience any challenges, but that young 22, 23 year old versus me now, totally different investor. So, you know, where investors don't really like to share their hard stories, I experienced that from the gate. Wow. Okay. So you stayed in the investing space and you transitioned from fix and flip to multifamily. So talk to me. It took a while to transition into that. So after the market crash, obviously I tapped out like a lot of real estate investors you know, you had to rebound and, you know, make up for some of the losses. So I have my other business. So that, that continued to be my, my fallback. Um, and then when I jumped back in, I was still in the multi, I mean, in a single family space, I created a, an investment fund with a, a few other black millennials. And we called it the Miami millennial investment fund. At that time, it was to address gentrification. So this is well after we've, you know, recovered as an economy, this is 2015 to 2016. So we essentially, created this social impact model of going into the hood, buying um, properties, distressed properties in the hood that's already being gentrified, 
rehabbing them and then selling them as workforce housing to people in the hood, back to the members in the hood. Um, and it was a social impact model for us to create peer influence. So I did that, you know, for, you know, two, three years and led that with the group and I tapped out of that. Um, and then as an investor, I kind of tapped out of Miami as well, just because everyone knows Miami is like one of the hottest investing markets. So it's hard to really compete if you don't have deep pockets. So I came across these investors in Jacksonville and they were telling me all, you know, the good stuff that, that was happening in Jacksonville. So I found me a realtor the next day. I was like, hey, find me a property in this area. So I purchased um, a historic property in Jacksonville, about 3,000 square feet, five bedrooms. Um, and, you know, this is an investor, right, who's trying to do a rehab from a distance. And you think you have so much experience, unless you do a rehab from a distance, that's going to show you, you know, what type of experience you had. So what was supposed to be a 90-day rehab was a 12-month rehab. That was me suing a contractor, and I, I, I beat that one too firing a couple of contractors, um, and then having every single problem that you can think of dealing with contractors, cussing them out, you know, kicking them off my site, uh, wasting money, spending time, the property sitting. So that's what took me to multifamily. After I finally got that done, I converted that property into um, a bed and breakfast and it's still operating. So I purchased that property with a lot of um, equity in it. So it still worked out to be a good deal. But the fact is that I wasted about nine to about 11 months on that. And the type of burnout that you get from doing a single family project, you might as well put that same energy into multifamily. So that was the transition for me saying, okay, if I'm going to put in this many, put in this much tears, have this much sweat going to a single family, I need scale. And I need scale in a major way. It can't be like a 10 unit or a 20 unit. It needs to be 100 units. It needs to be 150 units or better. And that's how I actually tapped into the multifamily sector. So let's talk to you about the big deal because most people I've learned aren't able to get that first big deal done. They usually do something in between uh, five and 50 and then they step up. So let's talk about that first big deal. Okay. Well, I'm working on a big deal right now that's also interesting and complex at the same time. So um, I already, I, I forecasted what this economy was going to look like going into 2020. I didn't know COVID was going to happen, obviously, and I didn't know it was going to happen this fast and this fast, but I already knew 2020 was going to be an interesting year. So I was looking for a growth market, an emerging market where competition would not be so stiff and where the five to 10 year outlook could put me in a really good position. So I went into Detroit. And, and obviously everyone looks at Detroit like, I don't know about that, you know, we've heard too much. But what ha was happening in Detroit is happening really fast and I, a lot of black investors are not tapping into it. And so for it to be a black city, when you talk about gentrification and what that looks like, that's gonna be Detroit in 10 years, probably even less than that. Um, and so with all the revitalization that was happening in downtown Detroit, I knew that I wanted to be part of that momentum. So essentially that means that I wasn't too early, but I wasn't late. And that's why I went into Detroit, but I went into Detroit with some prudent um, wisdom as well. So I got with a couple of developers that essentially I was like, look, take me by the hand. I need to know the ins and outs of Detroit, the good and the bad. And that's essentially what they did. Um, and, you know, I was like, let me build up my social and political capital. I'm not going to come into a, a new market and think that, you know, I can run it like how I would normally run it in Miami. 
Um, and so I purchased a 138 unit building. You know, a lot of things are in Detroit are distressed and vacant. So, you know, I purchased one of those at a very great price. Um, it's been vacant for at least eight to 10 years and it was a former senior housing project. So What's up guys, it's your host, Jerome. I just wanna let you know, we launched Myers Methods in the fall of 2019 with the ambition to inspire a new breed of multifamily investor. If you are interested in getting into multifamily or scaling your current business, hop over to our website at MyersMethods.com to grab your free four step guide on how to get the ball rolling in multifamily. Now let's get back to the episode. So my business plan is to redevelop it into an affordable assistant living facility. And that doesn't sound sexy, but if you look at trends and if you see what's happening, the senior sector is probably one of the sexiest sectors that you can get into right now in real estate because seniors are about to be maybe almost a quarter of the population in less than 10 years. All these boomers are gonna be seniors in less than 10 years. And so there's a huge housing gap right now for seniors. Um, and they're calling it the silver tsunami. So essentially, it's going to be a wave of seniors just taking over. Um, they're going to downsize their single family homes and they're going to move into uh, senior friendly living. And then the oldest of the oldest seniors, those that are like 75 plus, are going to be the ones that are going to be moving into an, uh, an assistant living facility because they're not necessarily nursing home ready. And it costs the federal government too much to put seniors into a nursing home. So the assistant living facility is the perfect medium for that. So they need the affordable options. Right now, if you look up um, senior housing, you're gonna find them to be five to $8,000 a month because senior housing typically serves the, the middle to upper incomes. So the affordable segment is, is what's missing and then the middle to lower is definitely what's missing. So my building is meeting that gap um, and Senior housing is not cheap, but what I'm doing is combining HUD vouchers and Medicaid waivers to pay for the housing and the services to secure the operational funds. So I have a pretty solid model. I have a solid operating partner that essentially created this model. Um, so that's why I say it's a complex, even from a financing perspective, I'm pursuing tax exempt bond financing and LIHTC, low income housing tax credits for it. Um, and CDFI financing for it. So it's gonna be a sweet deal. But it's gonna be a, a long road ahead. So you just stacked on like all of the things. It's like one of the most complicated deals I've heard of so far. And I admire what you're doing because there aren't a ton of people who are willing to go into Detroit. They feel like there's too much unknown. And it's kind of like the fog that a lot of people are experiencing with COVID. It's like, what is things, what are things gonna be like? on the backside of this and is it safe to go there and how do I know that the play is, is stable or solid? So talk to me about like, how'd you pick your operating partner for this? Because, you know, it's one thing to have a business model where you just are providing housing and people are paying you for the opportunity to live in the property. It's something else to have housing and then have the care that goes with assisted living on top of it, which is really profitable if you do it the right way. But how did you um, find your operating partner so that you could get comfortable combining the two business models? All right. So going back to your comment about Detroit, I didn't go into Detroit like, oh, I see a $10,000 building. Let me go buy that, which is what a lot of investors do. And they get <laughs> blown. 
I spent a lot of time on the ground in Detroit. You know, I, I walked the streets, you know, I got to know people. I got to know who's doing deals. So I, I, I was flying in, into Detroit every other week, spending three, four days at a time. And that's how you do Detroit. You don't go, you don't do Detroit and find a property online and say, let me go ahead and buy that. So that was the difference in what I did. My operating partner, one of the things for me as an, as a entrepreneur, for one, I don't need to have all the details up front, right? I'm a, I, I'm a shrewd entrepreneur and investor. If I have just a piece of a plan together, everything else, I trust the process that everything is going to fall in line. So I saw a building eight months ago. The footprint is there. What did I say earlier? I wanted scale. So it had 138 build, um, units, right? The, the dollar um, amount was good. Um, it's an emerging market. I saw how it fit into a bigger economic development picture. So I didn't know that I was going to do an assistant living facility with it. I just knew that it was a senior housing. So if anything, it's a multifamily project. But as you start to vet out your ideas, as you start to, you know, talk to different developers and you start to weigh out your ideas publicly and meet different people, more comes to the table. I didn't intend to pursue life tech or tax exempt bond financing, right? But as you continue to talk to it, I talked to everybody about the project and it, ideas flourished. And that's how my operating partner came about. Um, I was in Miami um, speaking to a business colleague and was like, you know, I see this building as a senior housing building. I want to buy it. And she was like, uh, you need to meet the person who created the first senior public housing project in the entire country. I said, oh, hook that up. We had dinner and the rest was history. So I essentially, at dinner, first time meeting this person, I essentially made them a proposition. If I go ahead and buy this building, will you go into business with me? And that's essentially how it came about. Wow. So you've closed on the building already. How, yeah. you buy cash or how'd you? Yeah. How do you raise enough cash to buy a building to that's a dead asset? It's my own cash for one. And secondly, um, there's a lot of money that's waiting to be invested. So even then, I was raising equity for this deal on the financing side, right? So I knew that when you do any deal, you're gonna have to put in 20 to 30 percent equity any anyway, right? So I was already pitching a deal to private equity. And this is the thing, a lot of people in real estate, they want to have all the pieces together before they move on. I saw this property eight months ago. And even before I actually closed on it, I was already pitching investors. You know, I was already walking in line of me buying this building. So, I, you know, I was pursuing private equity in it. And you'd be surprised how much money is waiting to be invested. And I actually um, talked to a few capital markets um, investors and they were like, you know, we love the deal, but it's too small for us. You know, you have investors out here, they're not looking to cut a check smaller than $7 million. You know, so the money is available. You just got to talk to everybody. I'm in New York a lot. So while I'm in New York, I'm, you know, meeting up with Wall Street guys, um, pitching um, private equity up there. So it's networking. It's talking to everyone. They connect you. And that's how money gets raised. We're... Are there any missteps along the way with the acquisition of the property or where you've gotten to at this point on the deal? No, because I've had more than enough time to digest this. I saw this property in May. I closed on it in February. In March, actually. I had the contract on it in February, closed in March. So there was enough time for me to do all my due diligence, for me to allow it to saturate in my spirit, 
you know, even at the moment of closing, I'm like, God, you know, you can really take me out of this deal if you don't think it's going to be good. You know, so I, I had enough um, built in, uh, I would say, checkpoints for me to back out of the deal if I didn't think it was going to be good. So the fact that eight months and I, you know, I've stuck through it, um, the, it, it keeps getting better. The picture keeps getting bigger. You know, the players at the table keeps getting larger. Um, and the more and more I vet it, the more people are like, you know, we need this. How do we support this? So I know that I'm right along. Now, that, that doesn't mean I'm not going to face any roadblocks. Financing for something like this can be anywhere from six months to 12, to 12 months, you know? So that's going to be the part. So what do you do in the meantime with pre-development, right? So that's where I am right now, um, securing pre-development funds, because you still have to do your architectural and engineering. Um, you don't want to wait 12 months and sit on this building that I've already put cash out of pocket. You know, I need my money to start um, working on me. So it's patient money, but it ain't that patient, you know. So, so I'm like, I need some pre-development money right now um, because it might be 12 months before I can, you know, put shovel on the ground. So that's what I'm working on right now. Awesome. The last question is what words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? Well, it depends on where your listeners are. For those who are starting out, I find that people just don't know where to start and how to start and what to do. And the biggest barrier is fear. You know, people are afraid of losing money, right? And naturally, so nobody wants to lose money. But scare money don't make no money. Um, and I lost money very early, but I made money very early too. So I know what it's like to lose money and I know what it's like to make it back. And trust me, it's better to lose it and make it back. Um, versus to to be so scared to lose it that you never even try in the first place. So um, it's the fear factor that people have to get rid of. Um, and everybody's appetite is different. Your appetite may not be like, let me go do a 150 unit building, but your appetite is, let me go do a 10 unit. What I can say is scale is important. Um, so in an economy like this, where who knows what type of deals we're going to see. I think that's still wait. We're still waiting to see what that looks like, but you better be ready to go and scale. Um, a lot of people wonder, how do you get the money to do something like this? It's so much easier to raise on a big deal than it is to raise on a small deal. When um, me and my group started the investment fund, we were doing like $10,000 raises. Do you know how hard it is to raise from $10,000 checks? Do you know what kind of fear people have when they got to give you their $10,000 savings and what type of questions and, and accountability you got to have to those people versus when you can go raise from someone who says, okay, I can cut you a $3 million check. And all they're looking at are the numbers. The financials is, is how they make their, their decision, right? So there's a, a different caliber of investor that you're you know talking to when you're raising from a bigger check so you don't have to deal with the smaller nuances of someone who's giving you their last ten thousand dollars so it's much easier to raise to find that one or two you know check that can cover your entire raise versus having to raise ten thousand dollars from 30 people so the money is a lot easier than what you think awesome i really appreciate you taking time to share with the listeners um, and we'll talk soon. We'll have you back when you get through the process. Cause I, I'd love to hear the backside of the deal. I'm probably not going to get through the process in a long time because construction is about 15 to 18 months. Pre-development by itself is six to eight months. Financing is going to happen during that same time. That's six to 12 months. 
Um, and then stabilization, once construction is done, is probably another nine to 12 months, right? So it's going to be a long time. So I'm going to have a lot of different phases, a lot of starts, right? So it's, I'm going to have some new stories probably <laughs> every few months. <laughs> have you back because this is exciting. It's, it's a huge deal. Um, not a whole lot of people are in the space. Not a whole lot of young people, not a whole lot of women, not a whole lot of black people are doing senior living or affordable or assistant living, period. Right. So let me just say that. Standing out, trailblazing. I so like I want to see more of us, you know, because when I have to go to these um, equity calls and meetings and I got to deal with old white men, you know, as the only black woman, it's, it'll, it'll, it'll be good to have other people that look like me in the room as well and now that i'm moving into the senior i'm far from being a senior but now i'm i'm moving into the senior business and obviously i'm probably going to be doing the associations and the national meetings i'm gonna be the youngest person in the room probably the blackest person in the room it'll be good to have some other young black people in the room as well so all of the exposure again viola thank you for sharing with the listeners and we'll talk soon okay thank you again have a good day you made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor, give us a five-star rating, give us a review, and share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.